over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, we're thrilled to have Jonathan Dodson on the broadcast today. Jonathan is the founding pastor of City Life Church in Keep It Weird, Austin, Texas. He and his wife, Robbie, started the church with a small group of people. They have three kids. He is the founder of gcdiscipleship.com, and we'll have that specifically in the show notes so you can find it, gcdiscipleship.com. He is the author of a number of books, including Gospel-Centered Discipleship, Here in Spirit, and our good crisis. He enjoys listening to the war on drugs. We need to talk about this, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Reading sci-fi and going for walks. And I presume you go to walks with Robbie. Oh, absolutely. Good. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. So how long have you been in Austin? We've been in Austin 15 years. We moved here in 2006 with a dream of planning a church. We had just uh, one child and another one on the way. We now have three, two teenagers and a 10-year-old. Fun. And uh, we have a big big family church now. So all started in the living room with nine people. So we're so grateful to to really see God be faithful in a very difficult city where people are yeah. not interested in going to church on Sunday morning. Yeah. It's really Sunday is just a second Saturday. It's a time to do brunch and hang out for most of the city. So we're grateful to be downtown and by God's grace, seeing him draw people out of, out of that culture into a culture of grace. Well, it's great to hear. Um, we're my wife was born and raised Houstonian, and I spent most of my life in Texas. Uh, we wasn't born okay. there, but we we love Texas and have lots of friends in Austin and Dallas, Fort Worth, and it's it's always go, great to go home, so to speak, to visit. But yeah, but we're loving Nashville, so we're glad to be here. Well, let's jump into this little twenty five verse uh, easy capizzi book called The Letter of Jude. <laughs> And th- oh, thanks, first of all, for, for joining us to talk about it. And if folks are new to the podcast, what we have been doing is I teach through one book of the Bible each week, and then we get a subject matter expert, somebody who's studied or written a commentary or maybe done a lot more work in the text. And so it's a good uh, opportunity to, to take some things a little further than we would do in one sermon, much less if I was to teach it verse by verse, which would take years. So uh, this is this has been an interesting journey. So if you're new, that's what we're doing. And again, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. So as you think about this letter to Jude, what's the 30,000 foot take on it for you? Uh, if I was going to boil it down very simply, I'd say it's a letter about authority and love. Whose authority are you willing to follow? Who has the most influence in your life? That's what Jude was wrestling with his own congregation as other teachers spiritualities, theologies were making its way into the church. They were questioning his authority and the apostolic authority, authority of the scriptures in favoring other alternative authorities. The book opens and ends with love. He calls God's people the beloved, the beloved of God. And then he reminds them at the end to keep themselves in the love of God. So uh, whose authority uh, are you following? And then second, who loves you best? Who loves you most? And really, those two things are tied together. The person with the greatest amount of love is going to be your functional authority in your life. 
So if you love what your peers think about, you love those professionals in your field, you kind of heroes, you're going to organize your life around their influences. If you uh, love Jesus Christ, uh, you're going to let him be the authority in your life. So I think you boil it down to two words, it's authority and love, which is actually a covenantal idea that God covenants based on authority, his authority in our lives, his law, but he also does it on the basis of love. He keeps the law on our behalf and pulls us into relationship with him. So that would be, that'd be the simple way. That's, that's, I love it. I love it. It's great. When uh, we don't know a lot about Jude, I don't know if you've did any homework on it. I know historically there's a bit of debate about who he is. Uh, any, mm-hmm. any insights that you learned along the way? Yeah, there's, there's some debate about it. You know, this, this is a tough letter. There's debates like every other verse. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when, when I, when you first asked me to come on, I thought, I don't know if I'm a subject matter expert. There's just so many questions and the authorship would be one of those. I, I tend to go with the idea that it's the brother of Jesus, which is recognized by early church fathers uh, in the second century as Jude being the brother of Jesus, which is very interesting because if in fact this Jude is the brother of Jesus, Man, if you were going to lay down those credentials, here's your opportunity. <laughs> True. Jude, the brother of Jesus. You know, like, All caps, I mean, yeah. you, you've been dealing with this your whole life. Then you kind of got sanctified. Then you realize, okay, man, it's a privilege to be the brother of Jesus. And uh, you write a letter and you say, a servant of Jesus. Now, that tells me something. That tells me something about the radical influence of Jesus in his life. I came across a, a line from D. Edmund Hebert. He said, Second Peter and Jude have been called the dark corner of the New <laughs> Testament. And it's interesting because they are hard books, both of them. Yeah, and they're, uh, I, I was telling a friend today, they're uh, second only probably to first and second chapter of Romans, about in your face and confrontational and hard. But yeah, well, let's let's get into some of these things. As you scan down the first, let's say four verses, let me, let me just read a couple, I'll read three and four, beloved. While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, so that alerts us he's talking to believers, we think, I felt it necessary to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The way I was trained, Jonathan, I could preach that verse for about eight Sundays. <laughs> There's a lot in those two stanzas. I mean, first of all, you talked about the enduring part of it, the common salvation. I think we're good on that. But then contending earnestly for the faith, which was once handed out. What do you think is going on in the back context here? Well, we we have uh, later on in this short letter, we have numerous illustrations of people, verses 5 down to 7, who are um, questioning the faith, challenging the faith, abandoning the faith. So the context for this letter is a congregation in which influential people are challenging, abandoning the faith. So it makes sense then out of a sense of, of the authority of Christ and the love of Christ for Jude to address his congregation and say, contend for the faith, which I'm sure you know, you know, is, is an athletic type metaphor. It's to discipline, to anguish, to expend effort. And a lot of times we don't think about faith as requiring effort, but it's very clear here that we're to contend for the faith, to expend energy on the faith. 
And uh, that's so important because it's being challenged from so many different uh, sectors uh, here in the letter. We talk about, I try to differentiate between the point of salvation faith and faithful living. And sometimes we tie in faithful obedience. And you're right, this concept, it seems somewhat lost on our culture that easy Mm -hmm. believism, what I call a a horizontal theology, is all about I, me, my, what God's Mm going to do for me, for my family, my passions, my dreams, etc., as opposed to a vertical submission to this God and Father and Savior. But that's not, we don't differentiate that without becoming Armenian. We don't differentiate, you got to stay at this. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a a real accent in this letter on that, isn't there? Uh, The faithfulness of the faith. Or as Paul says in Romans, the obedience of faith. Yeah. Uh, y- your faith produces obedience and genuine. So faith that saves you is the faith that changes you or sanctifies you. So he's calling them here to contend for this precious faith, which uh, reminds me of Paul, the description of Paul that he would, was preaching the faith he once sought to destroy. Yeah. You know, so that the faith is kind of a stand-in for the gospel. You don't just believe the gospel once. You continue to repent and return to the blessings and the grace of the gospel. That That's rooted here, of course, in that apostolic tradition, once for all delivered down to the saints. This is uh, something for 20 centuries that has been handed down by the church, and it's recognized as an inspired tradition. It comes from the Lord himself. So it's it's uh, it's tradition. It's inspired scripture. It's the heart of the Christian faith. It's the gospel. If you're going to expend energy on anything in your life, this is the thing to expend energy on. Talk to us a little bit about verse four, these people that have crept in unnoticed, which that word is very intriguing to me. You know, we weren't paying attention to who's coming into the church. (laughs) They crept in unnoticed. And then we have this uncomfortable thing in our culture today about they're marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons. You know, if you're a double predestination, you know, person, you can intellectually compartmentalize God's, you know, set this cordon them off. Yet yeah, that's a, still a hard passage to read, Jonathan. Yeah, no, it's it's hard on multiple levels. Yeah, so opening up, crept in, sneaked in, the word kind of, kind of the crafty, sneaky. Yeah. They look Christian on the outside. They go to church. They're in your small group. They can... Uh, probably know scripture well. They often have an answer. They're, they're they're around. They're present. They're engaged. They're knowledgeable. But there's an agenda. There's a, a sneaky, stealthy agenda. This is what makes them so challenging: is that people begin to to like them, to welcome their influence, to even recognize their authority. And all along, they actually have a an agenda to pervert the grace of God. Not the same, and you may have this experience in Austin, but when I was in Northern Virginia, we'd have people that would visit quite often. We had a high turnover because of the military and the political environment up there. We had like mm. 33% turnover every 18 months. And mm, so it was, very, it was very interesting. And the good news was we had new people all the time. And so we actually had a designated guest reception room, which doesn't work in most churches, but it worked great for us. And we'd have 10, 20, 60 people on a given Sunday who would come to Thaggis reception. And I, I learned to ask better questions, but I remember early on asking, you know, where are you from? And I learned to later say, are you new to the area? But uh, when I said, where are they from? They would start dissing some church that they had just left. Mm. <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I said, oh, Pastor Jonathan, he's a good friend of mine. And just look at him. 
<laughs> now, it was some, if I knew him, obviously, because I, yeah. I didn't want him there. You know, if yeah. they're coming for the first time telling the pastor of this church all the things wrong with where they are, there are a lot of agendas. And yeah. uh, on the one hand, you want to minister to the flock of God. On their hand, you have to be smart about who's in your church and how you vet them. And are you going to let these people lead or teach a children's class or an adult class or lead a trip? Yeah. It is clever language that he uses here. Yeah, and it re- really requires discernment. The whole church needs to be discerning. This, this is a wake-up call for the whole church. It's not just for the leaders, right? Yes. Yes, pastors should be guarding their flocks, but the brothers and sisters should be guarding and caring for one another. And, uh, you know, some of the warning signs for these kind of people, like you pointed out, well, they're, they'll run down another church. They're kind of rejecting another authority. Yes. And sometimes we leave for good reasons, and that's yeah, fine. Absolutely. Another warning sign, I think, is people who seem quite knowledgeable, but you rarely confess sin. So they're they're knowledgeable about the Bible. They like to talk about scripture and theology, but you never hear them confess their own failures to live up to the scriptures. Yeah. You know, so just being discerning about those kinds of people, those kinds of warning flags, if you want to take this letter, really apply it to edify and build up your own congregation. So important. So what did we do with this phrase, long before, marked out for this condemnation? I don't know any other way to really genuinely interpret it other than you used the word double predestination earlier. This is a, a comfortable doctrine in the reform stream that God has predetermined some to salvation and some to condemnation. And we see that Paul arguing that in Romans 9, that there are some that are vessels of mercy that exist to draw attention to God's divine mercy, and there are vessels of wrath that exist to draw attention to God's divine justice. And so if we're going to truly honor God, and God is going to truly honor himself, he has to be true to all of his qualities. He can't just honor his love. He has to also honor his justice. Can we can we inject in that, because that, we have this I call them bookends. We have this tension of whosoever will, I lift it up, I draw them into me. The gospel is sufficient. He he wishes none to perish, no, not one. The psalmist, he, he doesn't delight in the death of the ungodly. And, and yet there is that eternal perspective we can't comprehend. You've probably heard the Alan Redpath or sometimes attributed to J. Vernon McGee, the arch illustration that all of humanity is going to hell. And we're all like lemmings. And somewhere along our life, there's an arch on the side mm-hmm. of the road that says, whosoever will. And some people walk through that arch and they're saved. And later in their salvation, they turn around and look on the back of the arch. It says, chosen before the foundation of the world. And the way I try to teach that is that the doctrine of election and predestination only has application for the believer, meaning it's not our position in life to look at the saved and unsaved or the elect and non-elect, that's God's business. What our response Mm -hmm. is, when I understand my salvation, I had nothing to do with it. God called me. He chose me for reasons I'll never understand. But my response to that is a life of obedience of faith, not who's saved and who's not saved. And then as we grow in faith, we look at humanity with more compassion. But the scripture never tells you and me to go out and say, oh, they're elect, they're not elect, you know. And that's right. No, that's no, that's a, that's a good pastoral word on that because, you know, there there are people who uh, cherish these doctrines and then begin to use them in unhealthy ways to judge others. 
I think it was Spurgeon who said, you know, if God only put an E on the shirt tail of every elect person, then I would know who to share the gospel with and not. But, you know, he, it's kind of tongue in cheek. I had heard that one, yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, there's a reason because you're supposed to love everybody. Right. You know, God, God, God loves generally. You know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Yes. And so we are to love freely as God has loved the world, but there is that specific call. That's good. Now, now you, you teased ahead a little bit, so walk us through this. Verse 5, you talked about those who are challenging and abandoning the faith, and you listed some uh, illustrations. So first he talks about, in verse 5, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently mm-hmm. destroyed those who did not believe. And then we go angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned. And then we go Sodom and Gomorrah. So to walk us through some of those, Jonathan. Yeah, so he's exhorting us to contend for the faith, spend great energy in defending the faith, living the faith, protecting the faith. Then he puts he puts the price tag for not doing it on there. There's condemnation. This is serious stuff. This isn't an intellectual game, and it's uh, it's even denying our Master and Lord Jesus. So this is this is serious stuff. Now he says, let me illustrate this for you. And so he gives several examples of people who are going to try to subvert the faith. So the first one would be Israel. He draws an illustration from kind of a big picture of Israel being rescued out of Egypt and then not ever entering the promised land. An entire generation perishes in unbelief as they wander the wilderness for 40 years and grumble and complain and refuse to trust God. So there's a picture of redemption, Jesus leading them out. We, we know that's Yahweh or the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, which some argue is actually a pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah. You know, Jesus is in the identity of Yahweh. He himself called, he's, I am the good shepherd. Yahweh is the I am. So I think theologically we're fine there. That this is Jesus, the I am, drawing them out of, of Egypt. So there's a redemptive thing. But then they are judged because of their unbelief. And Hebrews uses this also that we should be cautious that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and that we should encourage one another every day. Uh, So this is the first example of abandoning the authority of Jesus will lead to self-destruction. That'll preach. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The second example is, is angels or the glorious ones, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling he has kept them in eternal change and a gloomy darkness for judgment. Um, so first, Israel. Second, angels. These angels, you know, there's some debate of who this is. Is this kind of the fall of Satan and his angels? Right. It's alluded to in Job. Or is it the presence of angels cohabitating in Genesis 6 and raping women? And either way, however you take that, the angels have, like Israel, rejected God's authority and chosen themselves their own way. And that is leading to, again, self-destruction. It's interesting he uses the word keep here. It keeps them in eternal change, where earlier in the letter and then later in the letter, the word keep is redemptive. Keep yourself in love of love of God. God keeps you. So his keeping power can be redemptive or it can be judgmental. And uh, this is here to warn us to, to run to God, to be kept by him and to keep ourselves in his love, not to follow these poor examples of rejecting his authority and being kept in judgment. That, that's great insight. Let's let's go on to um, Sodom and Gomorrah because he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they 
in the same way as these, and that's where we do have the affinity toward the, the weird part of Genesis 6, indulged in gross immorality, went after strange flesh, exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And I just as a caveat, M. Torov here, you know, that's eternal annihilation, John Stott, whom I love you. It's, it's just interesting how we don't like these teachings. And that's why I think Hebert talked about them being dark corners, is they're hard <clears throat> to read these things, especially in a, quote, loving and tolerant culture, close quote, that we find ourselves today. Thoughts on what, what Jude is saying here? Well, it's the third illustration of what happens when you abandon God's authority and you choose an alternative authority. Here, the authority is not an angelic authority. It is the authority of your own your own moral intuition, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the Rosanases likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They're an example of abandoning the moral norms that God had given and choosing their own uh, moral and particularly uh, sexual sexual norms. So the, the authority is relocated from God and divine revelation to the inner self, to what I feel. And this is, you know, McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre comments on our, our present moment of ethics and morality. He calls it emotivism, that our decisions about sexuality or anything are not determined by some tradition or great religion, but they're determined by intuition and feeling. And the problem with that is that when you when morality is determined by intuition and feeling, then you've got you know hundreds and thousands of people determining what is good or not good, what is true and untrue. And then you get a kind of boiling over, which we see in social media today, where it's just kind of a cacophony of, of voices. It's a shouting match people trying to shout the loudest on what they think is true and what is good. And you see, then you've got many sources of the good and true. It it becomes completely untenable. (laughs) There is no one good. So I think it's important to recognize that's perhaps the more dominant expression today of relocating authority from outside of ourselves and tradition or religion and finding it inside of ourselves. It becomes uh, total chaos and um, very subjective. The example here is is sexual immorality. Now, this is a bit uncomfortable. We may have listeners who have same-sex attraction. God is not condemning people for having a same-sex attraction, but acting on that attraction in sexually immoral ways. And he's alluding to these men who wanted to sleep with two angels in the book of Genesis uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah. So I think that's an important distinction. We all have desires that are you know ungodly that we may not act on uh, maybe lust maybe envy uh, maybe gossip so that the the condemnation is not for experiencing that but for acting on it for rejecting the authority and then saying i'm going to i'm going to determine what's good or true and conversations with my good friend uh, christopher yuan and uh, rosaria butterfield we've talked about this in great detail because the way our culture has gone is that's the way I'm made. That's my affinity. That's my desire. And I use the illustration of, well, if that's the index and I'm a womanizer and I need to tell Cindy, my wife of 40 years, I'm sorry, honey, I'm a womanizer. God made me this way. And I'm going to conquest as many relationships as I can because this is how I was made. And no, there's a thing called uh, self-control and the Holy Spirit's control. 
And I <laughs> submit to those things. And interestingly, I had pushback from one LGBTQ proponent, and he said, well, you have an outlet for yours. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you do too. But you choose to pervert that outlet into something, you know, of course, it doesn't go anywhere. But it's an interesting analysis because I would not have thought in my lifetime we would be where we are with this issue. And I've told our church, you know, there may be a time that we go to jail for what we're thinking and believing because it's an affront to people. But, you know, back to your your paradigm, authority, uh, whose authority will we submit to and whose authority will we proclaim without fear? Interesting times. Yeah. I remember discipling a young man with same-sex attraction. He asked me, so are you, are you telling me that God doesn't want me to be loved? The, the thought of being with a woman makes my skin crawl, and I can't imagine that, which is really good for me to hear, to appreciate the depth of that, of that struggle for someone with same-sex attraction, to empathize with that. Uh, but then to circle back to this objection that God doesn't want me to be loved. Well, no, actually, he, he, he wants you to be loved more wildly and deeply than you could ever imagine. And that love comes from his exclusive gift to you in Christ. And so I think uh, it's important to kind of sympathize and understand pastorally where people are coming from, but then point them, if you really want love, no partner, no friend, no church, no community will give you undying, perfect, flawless love. Only God in Christ can yeah. give you that. You know, and, and that's the hope here, an authority who gives himself to you at, at his great cost uh, and then loves you perfectly and flawlessly the rest of your life. So. Great word. Great word. This intriguing part here in uh, verse 9, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. First of all, I always have to tell people whenever I meet a young boy who's named Michael, which is my name, of course, I say, do you know what your name means? And they sometimes will say, you know, they're, they're reticent, but say one who's like God. I said, yeah, that's what I was told when I was a boy too. And then when I studied Hebrew, I learned it's a question. In Michael, who is like God? Answer, nobody. Not even <laughs> Michael, the greatest angel that God created, second perhaps Lucifer. But it, it's extraordinary that here Jude uses this illustration that this most magnificent of all of God's creatures did not do what only God could do. Yeah, yeah, and he even sets it up again. This is about rejecting authority, and it's a curious uh, little detail here, you know, that there's nothing in the Old Testament about this. This is the only place that we have this information, which probably came down from um, maybe the Testament of Moses or the the Assumption of Moses, uh, some extra-biblical texts, pseudepigraphal, they're called pseudepigraphal because we pseudonym, we don't know who, who wrote them, but they contain historically accurate and thematically helpful material, but they're not inspired. Right. So it, it, it does raise a question for the reader here, you know, well, the, can we trust this verse nine if it's actually not coming from the Bible, but it's coming from a book outside the Bible? And we would recognize that, you know, Paul quotes, you know, Greek poets the Old Testament uses censuses that are taken by pagans. So it's not wrong for the Bible to use information that is outside the Bible. And especially since it's being used for illustrative purposes or historical purposes. And this is a 
apparently Jude is saying, you know, this is a, a tradition that's been handed down. It's true. It just doesn't happen to be in the Bible. So I'm going to use it here. So I, th- I think that can kind of be a puzzling. That background was helpful for me when yeah. I was studying to kind of figure out where this came from. Yeah. You know, I, I love it. And, and again, to a point I was trying to make, and it does follow your theme of authority well, is that he did not exceed the authority he was given. I was talking to someone recently about angels and uh, in a Q&A, and they were very intrigued by angels. And I said, remember one thing, God dispatched him, and they only did what he told them, no more, no less. And that was the remarkable part about these messengers. And it's just, it's kind of chilling to me to think about this here, arguably would be second to God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the most powerful thing God made. And he probably could have done this, but no, it's not my place to rail and judge against Satan. That's for Christ. It's remarkable self-restraint and, you know, acknowledgement of the lines of authority. If anybody could kind of flex, you'd think it'd be the archangel. But he's like, no, the Lord rebuke you, not not Michael. Um, The Lord is the one who, who judges and saves. But, you know, that does raise the question, well, can we can we cast out demons? Can we, uh, you know, is that allowed? Uh, well, we certainly see that in the Gospels. But again, it's not in my authority. And this is a danger in the first century context of, you know, kind of brandishing your spirituality, having angelic visions, you know, kind of drawing attention to, the again, the authority of self, the spiritual authority. And uh, so which makes it even glaringly clear that, hey, if you're going to confront a demonic being or you're going to attempt to cast out a demon, don't do it in your own name. Uh, do it in Jesus' name. Appeal to his authority. Yeah, see, I, I call somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that's beyond my uh, beyond my training. Let's go on here. Woe to them. Well, I got to read verse 10. These men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, those things which uh, are destroyed. And that's also a tell back to Second Peter because he uses the same language about unreasoning animals and instinct. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. You know, when I read things like this in a sentence, I often wonder the New Testament believer knew Old Testament theology better than probably oh, yeah. 90% of evangelical fundamental Bible-believing Christians. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. You know, it'd be like saying, at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg and at Antioch, these things happen. You know, <laughs> wait, I don't know. Yeah. I know those names. But before we I get your take on some of the details on that. I had an interesting interview with Dr. Charles Bayless, who's written on Jude, and he differentiated the way of Cain in a way I'd never heard before. And he said, essentially, all of the first, second, third John arguments are juxtaposing the way of Cain being unrighteous sacrifice to the way of Christ. And I'd never seen this in all the years with my nose in the book. Mm. I don't know if you did any homework on that yourself, the way of Cain. I I take take this. They walked in the way of Cain to be a distinction because he, he strings three, to, three things together. The way of Cain, Balaam's error, and Korah's rebellion. So he's been doing three kind of you know case studies of condemnation when we depart from God's authority. Here, I think he's getting more specific. So there's a particular kind of rebellion that's happening with each of these. Balaam would prophesy for money, greed. 
Cora wanted influence and envy, kind of spiritual influence in uh, Israel and was thwarting Moses' authority. And then Cain wanted God's favor on his own terms. He, there was an envy. So when I think, when I read this, I'm kind of thinking of what are the particular pathologies or particularly expressions of rejection of authority that are showing up in these case studies? And for Cain, you know, his countenance, you know, fell to the ground because God blessed his brother's offering and not his. So there was a, what was the sin that took him out? You know, uh, this is a good question to ask yourself as you're reading this book. It's not just all those bad people, all those secret, you know, people. What sin could take me out? For Cain, it was envy. For Balaam, it was greed. It all begins with a little seed. And then it blossoms into full-on rebellion and abandonment of God. So, yeah, when I think of the way of Cain, I think of, of, of an envy of his brother that got into his heart. Don't walk the way of envy. It will lead to destruction. I'm tempted to probably oversee here, overthink it, but... Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, or as mm. I like to say it, money, sex, and power. These three umbrella sins that encompass all of our temptations and misgivings. And you, you look at each one of those, and again, if we're following your theme about authority versus and submission versus rejection, certainly each one of them reject, right? Mm-hmm. They reject God's way, God's plan, God's intent. But again, I'm just struck in one verse, the way we number verses, how much history he covers. No <laughs> oh, man. It's, yeah. It's, you, you need to be reading your Old Testament to keep up with Jude. Well, it's also a bigger uh, reminder, just the depth of Scripture. You mentioned Spurgeon earlier. I think he also mm. said, no one ever outgrows the Scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. And, you know, it's hard to study it and not see there's a lot going on from a supernatural authorial intent because people aren't this smart in and of themselves. They just, they couldn't, Mm. you know, apart from divine inspiration, craft these incredible sections, which I guess is one reason it remains a number one bestseller, at least in English (laughs) countries. Yeah. Let's move on here. Let's come down to verse 14. Let's jump ahead a little bit. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. Are we getting a sense here what he's talking about? And of all Mm -hmm. the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, speaking arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Uh, Mm -hmm. Unpack that a little bit for us, Jonathan. Well, I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> I had a guest do that recently. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, yeah. You're, the, you're the expert now. Uh, the prophecy of Enoch, again, the source material on this, I don't recall this being in the Old Testament, may be from the book of Enoch. I don't remember this prophecy. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all who convict and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds. It's The theme is really coming to a head here. It's been about authority. Uh, Here's illustrations of subverting Jesus as your master, as your authority, master and Lord. Um, Here's particular sins that flower into apostasy and rejecting Jesus as your master and Lord. And now here's the consequence. This prophetic statement of judgment on all who reject God as their authority in Christ as their master. A very sobering kind of culmination of, of the letter so far. 
judgment is coming. And that's that's the wonderful thing about the gospel is that judgment is coming, but judgment has also already come in Christ. For those who put their faith in Jesus, he is judged in their place and they are lifted up into his love and redeeming grace. Or you can wait and face the final judgment, but judgment happens no matter what. And that's such a significant theme here. And here, these ungodly people who have rejected their authority, they get what they've chosen. They're, they're handed over to their inner desire. You want your true self? You want to follow your intuition and feelings? Here's the consequence. It is judgment from none other than God himself. And man, that's a place to pause and to reflect. And, and then it gets, it almost, I think in our view of sin, really? Grumblers? Finders, you know, speaking arrogantly, flattering people, you know, the economy of God's view of sin and ours is so differentiated. You know, we think murder and rape and so forth are like the most egregious sins. And then like, oh, you know, grossing up my receipt for uh, reimbursement isn't that big of a deal, you know, and yet not so with the way uh, God views us. Um, Yeah, I think it's it's important to, to recognize these are identity words. So. You know, it's not that you grumbled once if you're a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus, right? <laughs> Amen. It's a, I am a grumbler. You know, I am. A, these are the defining qualities. And there are people who we would say they're loudmouth boasters. You know, we might not use that language, but they're arrogant, we might say, or they're totally into themselves. So uh, I think it's, you know, God's grace is significant and deep and he forgives us for our sins. But when these sins become so defining, and we are unrepentant of them. Even if we say we're Christians, if these continue to define us, well, then eventually you're going to recognize this is actually who you are. You're a malcontent. You're a grumbler. You're, you're not actually living in the identity of Christ. You're living the identity of, of complaining. So, yeah, I think that, that just pastorally, it's important to recognize that distinction here, but not to blunt the exhortation. Right. Let's, let's dig out those seeds of sin so that we can enjoy more of Christ yeah. and be content, uh, humble people. Well, you mentioned earlier about the lack of acknowledgement of sin. And I was talking to someone recently, and this sounds a little bit uh, self-serving and maybe arrogant, but I, I will often reading something in our church say, you know, I struggle with this. I wrestle with this. When I read this, I feel so convicted and beat up and I fail at this miserably. And people will say, you know, you're not like any pastor I've ever heard before. And I went, not so boring? You know, and we, we go around and around about it. But, you know, there, there was a time, and I want to be respectful to our elders, that you never admitted your struggles or faults or talked about, you know, you're raising teens right now. Boy, raising middle schoolers will, you know, either make you grow in sanctification or you'll become a tyrant. I mean, it's it's a challenge, even with the best kids. And Every marriage goes through struggles and challenges, and the I think it was uh, oh goodness in the '90s the Christian culture moving to the word authenticity. Got to be authentic mm-hmm. in ministry. I thought that's like saying I got to be honest. Well, duh, but <laughs> but when you read these passages, to me it's sobriety because it says yeah. When I read about Cain or some of these egregious sins, uh, you know, if you're a fault finder, if you're bent on lust, if you're arrogant, if you speak with hubris all the time, you're always right. That's a problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, you need to be aware God's going to judge that in the in the unsaved economy column 
but the believer, it's not reflective of who he or she is in Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, verse 17 and following. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been talking in these interviews about the apostolic teachings of the cross. I remember, I think it was J.B. Light who first used that term many years ago. I mean, he's with the Lord uh, in a book, and it was the apostolic teaching. And I was a young believer in college reading this pretty heavy commentary at the time. And I thought, why is he talking about the apostolic teachings of the cross? And that really is our New Testament, because it's what Mm -hmm. these apostles, what they wrote and saw and did, that is the foundation of our faith. And in First, Second, Third John, that's really the backstory issue: is that they're resisting this, they're fighting against apostolic authority. You're not paying attention to me. Even in First John, when he says, "We want you to have fellowship with us and with the Lord Jesus Christ," I've always wondered why did he put it in that order? Why didn't he say with Jesus Christ and also with us? Because they were the spokesmen of the gospel. And they were the ones mm. who had the authority to present Christ. And so we see that in Jude's writing as well. He's, you know, this was beforehand by the apostles, which I think is very, is very cool. That yeah. they were, no, that, that, go ahead. Absolutely. No, I was going to say that I hadn't made that connection in, uh, in first John, that that's a great connection. And of course it's in acts that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles, apostles teaching. teaching. Yeah. And uh, here, here we're turning the corner to the good authority. Yes looked at so many bad authorities. Here's the good, reliable, faithful, true authority. I love it. They were saying in the last times, mockers will follow after their ungodly lusts. And again, this is a lot of parallels with Second Peter. And these are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now it's getting sweet. Now, now you can taste the love. You can taste the grace. But it's uh, it's in order to appreciate God's grace and the, the sweetness of his love, we, we have to uh, look at the things that threaten that. That's what he's been doing as an act of mercy here for his church. And that's what we do with other fellow Christians. We speak the truth in love. And this letter is is kind of turning the corner to, to show that even in a sweeter way here at the end, isn't it? So when you teach this, Jonathan, how, how would you tell your church building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy? How, how do you apply that contextually to your church? Yeah, so that there, there's uh, three or four participles, building, praying, waiting, keep, or keeping. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Well, we saw earlier that we were to contend for the faith, that we were to spend great energy on the gospel. To that's where, if you're going to spend energy, that's the best place to spend it. Here, that becomes not merely in defending the gospel, but in strengthening yourself in the gospel. And it's it's not just as an individual, but as a community, building yourselves up. So there's a there's an appeal here now as we turn the corner as the beloved of God to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. I think, you know, that the two primary ways that we do that are through the word of God and speaking to God through, through prayer. And he, he tips into that in the next participle, praying in the Holy Spirit. So as we build one another up, we need to use the scriptures to, to build one another up, to correct, to exhort, to encourage, 
one another. And that has a kind of faith strengthening effect. I was in a meeting a couple of days ago and we were talking and, you know, I sensed the need to apply a particular scripture in this context. And the person, when they heard that said, you know, God was speaking through you. And it was kind of this moment of pause, repent, pray. Now, it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because of my words. There's there's something that built him up on the spot that he stopped the conversation and responded to God and felt strengthened and clarified on what he needed to do next. That's the thing. It's it's not just encouraging words. It's not flattery. It's the thing that builds us up is the word of God that strengthens us and draws us close to him. So I think scripture and prayer are the simple application. Yeah, yeah. And I, I repeat it often. I talk about God's word, God's spirit, God's people, that you need continuing exposure to the word of God. You need submission to the Holy Spirit and you need God's people who are around you, who will speak truth to you and love you and slap you when you need it. Um, <laughs> and, and apart from those three, you can't grow. There is no path. So, well, wind it up for us, Jonathan, as, as you perhaps look at the last few verses. Of course, many people know Jude 24. Some have even memorized that verse. But that and anything else you'd like to give us kind of a closing thought on the book? Uh, yeah, maybe just to follow up on a couple of these other participles, yes. praying in the Holy Spirit. You know, I think, how do you pray in the Holy Spirit? Maybe it's helpful to think of how you don't pray in the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we pray in a doctrine. You know, I think young Christians sometimes are guilty of this, of, of trying to, to pray a systematic theology, meticulously arranging the prayer. And it's almost like God is lost in the act or praying in an emotion. So prayer, I, if I, the goal of prayer is for me to feel a certain way and God's love can be felt and it's wonderful, but often we, we just trust that it's there even if we don't feel it. And so not praying in an emotion, not praying in a, even a list of prayer requests as important as that is praying in the Holy spirit is, in, is in a reliance, not on my, you know, arranging the doctrine, having an emotion, getting through a list, it's more mystical, isn't it? It's praying in the Holy Spirit is asking him to direct the prayer. I think it was Origen that said that praying in the Spirit is like a prayer that's pulsing with the life of God, something to that effect. That there's a, there's a sense in which um, I'm praying God's will, I'm praying with his Spirit, and, and even to his Spirit, that the, the Spirit is a person, not an energy force to use in prayer to heal people or not a doctrine to be mastered, but a, a person to be known and loved. This is the, there's a qualitative difference of praying in the spirit versus just praying in a list or motion or a doctrine. And there's a real sweetness to that. There's a kind of depth and sweetness that's hard to put to words other than praying in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so I, I think if we cultivate a life of that kind of praying, we're going to do the next and that's keep ourselves in the love of God because our heart is awakened to the love of God when we pray in the spirit. And it's not that we don't not, you know, we pray a list, that's fine. But the more that we commune with the spirit and we rely on the spirit and ask him to direct our prayers, the more we're drawn closer to the heart and love of God. And we're inclined to keep ourselves in the love of God. And there is a responsibility. You know, we've talked a bit about kind of sovereignty and responsibility there's a responsibility for us as Christians to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's not just pray a prayer and then just kind of show up at church and do your thing the rest of the rest of your life. It, there's a sense in which you 
if I, if your marriage was uh, one in which you lived together and communicated well, but never had any dates, it'd be a pretty flat marriage. You need to, you need to also have times where you pull away together and talk deeply and have one-on-one time. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't just go to church, but go to church, but draw near to God, you know, um, keep yourself in the love of God. And the thing I love about it is that it's also a sovereign thing. God keeps us. He says at the very beginning here, just scrolling back up, kept for Jesus Christ. So those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which his keeping is stronger than my keeping. Am I responsible to keep myself alive? Yes. But his, his, his keeping is stronger. I think of like um, hiking with my kids in the green belts here in Austin, and we're climbing up rocks, and my five-year-old couldn't get up. And so I reached down, and I grabbed her and pulled her up. She reached out. You know, she's keeping herself on me, but it was my strength that kind of got her over the top. And in a similar sense, keep yourself alive, but God's going to grab you and pull you in. And it's his, his sovereign keeping, his sovereign love that keeps us in the faith. And that's a comforting thing to someone who struggles in everyday life like us. Jonathan Dotson, gosh, thanks for your work in the text, and thanks for joining us on the broadcast. Exceptional work, and appreciate your ministry. Hope things continue to stay weird for you in Austin, and uh, and uh, you're encouraged in how God is using you in Austin around the globe, brother. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you about yeah. this perplexing and such and such an important, a really timely letter for the times we're in. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.